Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Well, welcome everyone and thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Roberta Barbulini and I'm the Technical Manager here at Biopractica. And I'm very excited today to be joined by Danielle Elliott, naturopath based in Adelaide in South Australia. And Danielle is a naturopath, a herbalist and a nutritionist and she has a special interest in digestive complaints. She's actually been in clinical practice for 14 years but only begun specialising in gut health about eight years ago. But in the last eight years or so, Danielle has uh, published a book entitled Gluten-Free and Happy, which helps to educate patients with celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity on how to really optimise their digestive health and improve their overall well-being. Danielle also does a lot of work with patients who have SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and other functional digestive disorders. And she also runs Tummy Rescue, which is a great online community for patients with gastrointestinal disease. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Danielle. We really appreciate your time. Oh, and Roberta, thank you so much for inviting me again. I had so much fun last time and I'm sure we're going to have just as much fun today. That's great. And look, maybe for those listeners who maybe didn't hear the previous podcast episode you and I uh, recorded together, maybe Mm -hmm. you could tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do and how you ended up specialising in digestive disorders. Yeah, so um, obviously I started clinic and I worked very broadly across all conditions, um, but quickly um, following my husband's diagnosis with two autoimmune gut conditions, I really, that's where all my research was. um, And I guess I started talking about that a lot. When I was in community pharmacy, I did quite a few talks on gut health. um, And so, yeah, I just kept pushing and driving and really just reading, reading, reading um, in that field. And I just totally love it. Um, I probably spend, you know, about 80% of my patients actually come to me for gut-based conditions now. Um, So whether it's just a collection of symptoms or they've actually got a diagnosis of a condition. um, The other 10% are probably people coming to me for other conditions. So maybe autoimmune disease or immune conditions, but they know that gut health is a factor or that gut health is important with that condition. And then the other 10% are, you know, things that we all treat, things like blood pressure or stress or hormonal issues. Um, So I still get to do the other conditions and, you know, that, that keeps things exciting as well. And the rest of the time is you know, educating myself further in this field because it just fascinates me and there is so much research and doing things like this with you, podcasts, and I do online webinars webinars as well just to educate people and really get that information out there as much as possible. That's fantastic. And I must say, though, you know, what an interesting start on your journey to, to focusing on digestive disorders as a specialisation, though. Your poor husband, two autoimmune gut disorders at the same time. Yeah, Crohn's and celiac. So Crohn's was about six years prior to the celiac diagnosis. And I, you know, I think a lot of practitioners who end up in specialising in a particular field, you know, have some kind of personal connection to those disorders. So I imagine that was a really strong motivator, as you said, to go away and do a lot of research and reading into those those areas. Yeah, exactly. And it means a lot. So when it means a lot, you know, you're happy to invest your time in that area. That's right. And look, I think specialising in gut health as a, as a naturopath and a nutritionist makes so much sense because what's that old, that quote, that Hippocrates quote that we hear so often, you know, the gut really is the seed of health. Yes, definitely. So I guess, you know, for today's podcast episode, we're going to be focusing on this area of the gut as the seed of health. But in particular, I really wanted to explore with you the idea of how gut health impacts children specifically and how, mm-hmm. you know, gut microbial imbalances can affect children's immune health, digestive health and just systemic health. Yeah. So maybe as, as a general introduction to this concept, Danielle, could you explain to us a little bit about how the microbiome actually develops in children if they're healthy? Yes. So let's start with uh, the microbiome or microbiota. So the microbiota are a community of bugs that actually 
live inside us and also on us. So we have um, communities of microbiota on our skin. We have different ones in our mouth. The one in our small intestine looks very different to the one in the large intestine. But when, but this community is often these days just referred to as the microbiome, and I guess it's just an easier way to refer to it because that's what most people know. But technically, the microbiome is actually the genetic material that comes from the community of microbiota. When we talk about microbiome as well, um, unless it's specified otherwise, I think most people know that, you know, we're talking about usually the community in the large intestine. So as an adult, we have more than 10,000 species, different species that, you know, are in our large intestine and every single one of us has a very unique combination of these bacteria. Um, it's as unique as your fingerprint because everything we do that happens to us, everything in the environment affects, you know, which communities survive, which ones, you know, go really well. And sometimes things like antibiotics, which ones are going to be possibly killed off to the brink of extinction or possibly extinction. So as the fetus develops in the gut, um, it was thought to be a, like a completely sterile environment with no bacteria, but now we know that, you know, as the fetus develops, there are some bacteria there, but also that the health of the mother during the development is really, really important. So her microbiome affects the baby, her vaginal microbiome affects the baby, and even oral microbiome. So if a mother has periodontitis, this will affect the fetus. Um, the then there is a big introduction of bacteria at birth. So when we have a natural vaginal birth, the baby will get a huge amount of lactobacillus. Um, so over 95% of the bacteria in the mother's birth canal is um, lactobacillus species. On the other hand, if the baby is born via C-section, that, that baby will come into contact with more skin bacteria and bacteria that's found in the air. And so they will get more Staphylococcus species. Breastfeeding is the next stage that will really affect how the baby's microbiome develops. Um, in breast milk, we have high concentrations of um, milk oligosaccharides. These oligosaccharides are complex carbohydrates that the baby's digestive enzymes actually can't break down. So the purpose of those oligosaccharides is to get down to the lower gut in the colon and to feed the bacteria that is already there and change the environment. And now the baby's gut environment will become, you know, dominated by bifidobacteria species and lactobacillus species, and that will make up about 85% of the colon. And then there's a few other species as well. We know that breastfed babies from all the research that's been done, their gut does develop differently. Um, they are putting, trying to put, you know, mimic nature and put oligosaccharides in formulas, but their bacteria will be different. And, um, you know, it's found that babies that are exclusively bottle fed can have more chance of developing things like eczema and asthma. Um, and then the next stage that really affects um, normal development is weaning and introducing solid food because in solid food, we will find new fibers and starches that the baby hasn't come into contact with yet. And this will further diversify the bacteria community and you'll get um, growth of more uh, Bacteroides species and Clostridiales species as well. Um, around two to three is where you're going to reach really diverse community of bacteria in the gut. And around three years of age, um, we have hopefully, if everything's gone right along the way, a really robust core microbiome that will take us through the rest of our life. And at age three, you know, kids are pretty much eating an adult diet. So the microbiome appears more like an adult microbiome. Um, and the reason this is so important to have the most amount of diversity at this age and for it to be very stable is that, you know, our microbiome protects us. And if it has more flexibility, um, we really become less vulnerable to factors that can influence the health of the microbiome, whether that's actually inside our body or things coming from outside as well. Um, 
we know now that you know diversity um, and the health of the microbiome does increase our resilience to diseases and that poor microbiota um, is really associated with many health conditions pretty much we can probably name anything but the scientific <laughs> data is really showing inflammatory conditions are connected neurological things like parkinson's um starting the gut like 10 years prior mental health issues autoimmunity and metabolic um conditions as well yeah look i mean i think that was by the way just a marvelous journey through the evolution of our microbial fingerprint as you say starting <laughs> from you know starting from the placenta like you talked about the fact that the fetus we now know is actually um exposed to microbiomes yes, while they're still yes. in utero like we've mm. got that placental microbiome and then depending on type of birth exposure to things like vaginal microbiome and then you know as you said even things like breastfeeding when do you introduce solid foods mm. all of that influences that the, the infant's development and i love that um point that you make that it's really around three years of age that our personal microbial fingerprint is sort of established so we have yeah. up until let's say three years of age to really yes. get a, a, a new human's microbial fingerprint to be as healthy as possible for that resilience and resistance to disease as you said exactly it still changes throughout life um obviously things can be positive for it or negative um and there are some shifts in the microbiome or quite large ones we know now um, when kids are growing going through puberty so when they have more growth hormone that will also shift um that but really we've got a core microbiome by the age of around three years old so maybe let's explore like you made a comment just then about you know your microbiome can obviously shift a little bit and some things can negatively imp imp mm -hmm. impact the microbiome so what sorts of factors can actually derail that that normal development of microbial uh, evolution in, in in infants and children yeah so pretty much anything and everything we do everything that comes into our body and everything around us is changing it um, but some of the real, I guess, if we want to look at some of the negative things that can happen, are, uh, you know, infection, look, infection and getting colds and flus is a normal part of development, especially in young kids. You know, 10 colds a year when they're going to daycare and things can be normal as long as they're getting over it fairly quickly and it's not mm -hmm. carrying on for weeks and weeks. But, you know, infection, injuries can change um, your microbiome. The environmental factors so, you know, how many toxins do we have around us? What kind of products do we use? Um, are we over hygienic and, you know, sanitizing everything? That's going to make for, you know, um, a worse microbiome. Um, genetics come into play as well. Then we've got things like um, really we know now that I think up until the age of five, really the studies show, you know, how many antibiotics has that child had yeah. because those insults, you know, are a huge, like, like a, we always say a huge atomic bomb going off in the gut because it's not really specific. It's just killing everything in there, which includes your bacteria that are in there, the ones that you were born with. Um, whether a child's had medication, uh, medical intervention, you know, and sometimes it's necessary, that's, that's fine. Um, we can obviously work with that, but, you know, have they been on, did they have colic and reflux as a baby? Were they given proton pump inhibiting medication? Because that can change the um, bacteria population. Chemicals, um, things like plastics in our environment, you know, how much... Um, food is being heated in plastics and quality and variety of the diet, you know, as they go through all the ages, you know, are they having a diverse diet or are they just pretty much loving five foods and that's it. Um, and also what we've done to our food system as a whole. So, you know, when we went through um, agriculture to industrial food production and now a highly processed food environment this really has been shown through studies that it's decreased diversity over time and you know another thing sleep like sleep mm. really affects the microbiome as well so these are all you know things that you know sometimes they may be out of our control for a short period of time but at least you know we can do things to improve um or just compensate um for what's happened well i mean i think that's 
that makes perfect sense. But it is really interesting to think that a child, you know, if they're exposed to antibiotics, if they're exposed to mm. toxins, if they don't have a great diet, you know, they're really not getting the best foundation in terms of that microbial development. Exactly, yeah. So as practitioners, how can we actually help our, our you know, youngest patients to compensate for some of these negative influences? Yeah, so I guess if the earlier we can start the better, better. if you get the mum in either, you know, um, pre-pregnancy or during her pregnancy journey, you can look at the mum's health because this, as we talked about before, will affect the fetus. So that that's already going to start to help. Um, we can try to make, you know, the child's immune system and gut as robust as possible to limit the need for intervention um, and look at alternatives to some of the medical intervention where possible. Obviously, you know, there are cases and times where we need to use antibiotics and I would never stop a patient using them. But we can, as you said, we can try and compensate when it, when it is absolutely necessary to use some of these things that can have a pretty negative effect on the gut. So, you know, looking at keeping the diet as healthy as possible. I know when kids are sick, sometimes this can be hard and they might want a really bland diet. But, you know, soups can be, like vegetable soups can be an easy way. Even if they're not feeling great, they might be able to have a soup and you're getting a lot of um, fibres and starches in there. Trying to um, make sure they have a really good sleep routine um, we can we can as practitioners add um, fibers that actually help to you know feed the bacteria that are there and increase short chain fatty acid production to assist with regeneration of those um, cells and the mucus layer that um, sits on top of the cells in the gut. So partially hydrolyzed guar gum is one of my favorites. Um, it's really easy to give to kids. We can look at things like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, um, and L-glutamine. These will all have not only an impact on the immune system as a whole, but also on healing and on um, the environment the bacteria live in. And probiotics like um, L-ruteri, DSM-17938, really for kids has to be a favourite. And it, you know, it really helps with gut infections, you know, colds and flus um, and reducing the side effects of antibiotics so you can use it when the child's on antibiotics and then keep using it after to really reduce those um, side effects that are induced by drugs like that. Yeah, and I mean, as you say, sometimes, you know, patients can't avoid needing some of those medications. Mm. But I think if, if we can use things like probiotics and glutamine and, you know, partially hydrolyzed guar gum to help to restore what was damaged by the medications then i think it, it certainly improves that child's whole health trajectory in many ways doesn't it yeah definitely and when you look at um you know proton pump inhibitors which you know even the government now says that you know it should only be used for four to six weeks and there are more restrictions around using that drug but it doesn't mean that kids and adolescents aren't given those drugs you know mm. i've seen more, more and more children since i've had my children taking these drugs because they have severe reflux and instead of trying other things they just get put on it because you know i guess it it's their method and it seems like you know an easy fix to start with but kids bacteria can really shift very quickly um to overgrowths of bacteria when they're on these proton pump inhibitors because it decreases one of the natural defenses which is stomach acid yeah. so using something like l ruteri dsm 17938, um, I looked into the studies and there's one study that, you know, when kids were given the PPI along with this probiotic for 12 weeks, there was actually compared to using the PPI and placebo, the PPI and placebo group had about 56% of kids ended up with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, whereas alongside the probiotic, it was only about 6%. So you're already giving that child a 50% improvement or reduction chance of having this you know dysbiosis start in the gut yeah and huge. i kind of yeah and i mean i imagine if you know you've got children on ppis and they're already getting SIBO when they're that young yes the implications from a long-term health perspective has got to be pretty bad for those children mm -hmm. and, and you know 
I mean, my experience as a practitioner, and I don't know if yours is the same, is that unfortunately you don't always get to work preventatively with patients. You know, sometimes no. <laughs> you know, parents will only bring their kids in once the child's already been on antibiotics or PPIs and now they've got all these symptoms. Yes. So what are some of the most common presentations that you see clinically, you know, with children that actually tell you, oh, look, their microbiome is actually disturbed? What are the most common consequences that you see clinically? Yeah, so, you know, you could see continuation of reflux, even though they've been on these kind of medications. You know, abdominal pain, diarrhoea and constipation. They might, the parent might report that they seem to tolerate less and less foods or they're having, react, you know, more reactions to foods. Um, tummy pains is really kind of, I guess, or I've got a tummy ache is what mm. kids themselves really say or that they just feel kind of, I feel yucky and I feel sick in the tummy. That's kind of the words that children will use. Um, and if you think about, you know, the function of the digestive system, you know, that it helps us to digest um, foods, um, the, the microbiome also produce vitamins. So if the microbiome is disturbed, you, you can have a disruption in how many Bs you make and vitamin K. Um, it also helps to educate the kids' immune system as they're maturing. Um, so, you know, you could have, like, the parents are just saying, apart from GI consequences, it's just that they're always getting colds and flus now. They just can't seem to get over them. Um, and, yeah, but kids really say, tummy ache, feel sick, um, yeah. don't feel well. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, I think, you know, the thing with kids as well is that they may not have the words to describe it in any complexity, mm. but, you know, often if you look at where, what are they holding or their, their body language tells you a lot about yes. going, what's going on. Yeah. Now, one thing I did want to just discuss a little bit more as well is you mentioned before that longer term, you know, having any issues with gut microbial development in those first critical three years of life can have an impact on your risk of developing conditions like autoimmunity, atopy, inflammatory conditions. There is this really close link between the microbiome and the immune system. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, what are some of the longer term consequences if children don't get really good gut flora support in those first few years? What do you tend to see as they get older? Yeah, so I think kids will just develop worse and worse um, digestive symptoms. So as they go into their teens, they notice they can even eat less foods and, you know, teens eat a lot of junk food generally um, and they'll just go wow I just can't eat what my friends eat um, because it will cause these terrible reactions mm. you, you get a lower um, oral tolerance so you know foods will definitely become more of a trigger but this then like you said it leaves them really vulnerable to developing autoimmune conditions now you know you, you do have to have that genetic uh, propensity to that autoimmune condition but really if your body you know, doesn't develop, um, isn't educated properly by the immune system about what is okay to accept mm. and what is not okay, you know, what needs to be attacked and dealt with. That's where autoimmunity, um, it's one of the mechanisms that you can develop autoimmunity. And, you know, there's just so many autoimmune conditions, you know, there's um, type 1 diabetes um, and celiac, which are closely linked because they share one of the same genes. Um, you know, you can have inflammatory bowel disease. Um, you can have asthma, eczema. And, you know, these things I'm seeing more and more that they're flaring up in adults, like even um, eczema that presents often in children. I'm seeing more, you know, in the elbows and the knee creases um, in adults in their 20s is still a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing that I notice clinically as well is that sometimes the age of onset of some conditions that we used to think of as maybe only really happening in older adults is getting younger and younger. And oh, I think yeah. a lot of it for me is because their gut flora can be so damaged so early on that you see eight-year-olds with, you know, really drastic gastrointestinal conditions, you know, with the celiac disease, the IBD, the stomach ulcers I've seen clinically as well. Yes, yeah, even rheumatoid arthritis, like presenting, I've seen 10 and 12-year-olds with it. It's yeah. like that, you know, we didn't see that. Like even me in clinic, I didn't see that 10 years ago. So, I mean, if, if we look beyond the gut and on the immune system and look at the whole body, what else have you seen clinically that can present in children that is really ultimately linked to that gut microbial imbalance issue? 
Uh, you do see, you know, mental health issues, anxiety, um, just generally, you know, being unwell and just not being able to fight off colds and flus. These are all systemic things that, you know, we can see occur in children as well. You know, we really know now that it's not just the gut doesn't just affect the gut. It affects the whole body. Um, so, you know, you can have inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis as well. The gut barrier is, you know, protects us like our skin protects us. So it's a gatekeeper of what should be coming in and what's what should not be making its way into the body because really the gut is a tube inside our body, but you could still think of it as an, very much an external environment. But when you get leaky gut, it's like um, I heard it, I think, described by Dr. Morello, who's out of the US, that, you know, leaky gut is like a leaky roof. So if mm. you have a hole in your roof and it starts leaking water into the body that, you know, we, sh we don't want water coming in through our roof, if it gets on the hinges, you, you know, we can look at the hinges of the door being joints. So you might get joint pain or, uh, you know, rheumatoid arthritis. If it gets onto the TV and just say that's like an electrical thing, we can go, well, that's equivalent to the brain. You might get brain fog or anxiety. Um, and if it lands on the couch and starts to go mouldy, you know, you could think of this as your skin and you might get more systemic things like rashes and hives. And so really, you know, the gut is the gateway to the rest of the body. Um, so anything can kind of happen. <laughs> I love that analogy that, you know, depending on where things start to rust or break down or go moldy, that's where your yeah. symptoms are going to appear. Yeah. And I guess, you know, to your point earlier, that's where genetics maybe play a role as well because where exactly. your genetic tendencies are, that's where it's going to play out. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, obviously you work in this area a lot. You specialise in digestive issues. And as you said, 80% of your patients actually come to you primarily for digestive complaints. Mm -hmm. So... What are the most common childhood digestive issues you see clinically? Um, probably, you know, um, constipation. Um, okay. And it can really present as, you know, a tummy ache or cramping or nausea. Um, also food intolerances or parents might report that, you know, kids get a lot of gastro, like they're just more susceptible than, you know, their, their brother, their sister or other kids mm. in their class. Um, nausea can be one as well when you need to look at, you know, why why is the nausea there? But, you know, kids are very um, sensitive and, you know, they're robust and they're delicate. I think they can feel things a lot more. Um, and so nausea kind of is quite frequent as well, along with the other symptoms that they have. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, constipation is one that I know I've seen a lot clinically as well. Mm. How have you seen constipation present in your experience? It can, it can pretty much present in a lot of different ways, not just I can't go to the toilet. Um, a lot of times kids will say, yeah, the tummy ache because, you know, mm. there will be build-up, there'll be cramping. Um, but constipation can cause nausea. So that can be one of the reasons that kids feel nauseated just because there's a buildup of toxins and there's the motility of the gut isn't working correctly. They can have a decrease um, in appetite with constipation and just have a general feeling of like feeling sick all the time or yucky. Um, and, you know, if we think about, you know, toxin buildup and recycling of toxins through the wall, you know, that can definitely make you feel sick and yucky. Um, you know, difficulty passing or, yeah, like in young children, you know, who are still wearing nappies, you just might see that they push and push and go red and hold their breath, but still there's not much in the nappy. Mm. Or, you know, it can present as incomplete emptying. So they'll go, there's not really much there, then they'll go back again to the toilet because they have that urge but not much comes out. If it gets, you know, to a really chronic point, you know, you might even see things like rashes and diarrhea. So diarrhea is really, I guess, tricky because it's like, is that diarrhea or is that diarrhea because the child is so backed up and blocked up that only like water is coming out that can squeeze around. Oh, wow. Stool. So you can have diarrhea. The doctors will do an X-ray on the child's abdomen and there is buildup, like fecal buildup in the bowel. Mm -hmm. And they have diarrhea or, or bowel. I've had kids with bowel incontinence from constipation. 
when it gets really bad, you could even get to things like cyclical vomiting, abdominal migraines. That can be due to other things, but it is often seen with, con- with constipation as well. Yeah, and I think you've highlighted the really important point that with children, sometimes the symptoms are not always what you expect. Like the fact that a child with diarrhea or with bowel incompetence, uh, incompetent, incontinence can actually be fundamentally have an issue with motility and actually underneath it all be constipated is something that uh, you know I haven't really thought about clinically. I've, I've definitely seen it. And I guess the way that you definitely know that's what's going on is after the kids had an X-ray. Um, mm. And there's fecal impaction. So that child might have been going to the toilet every day initially, but they've just had like bowel retentions or sorry, stool retention. So they're keeping, you know, 10 to 15% of the daily stool um, in their bowel and it's just not getting out. And then you get a build up. And I mean, based on what we now know as well about how much um, constipation and, you know, fecal impaction can increase the risk of developing things like SIBO, IBS and functional digestive disorders, you kind of start to see how that could set up a pattern of lifelong digestive issues if we don't address it when they're young. Exactly. I see a lot of patients who've had, you know, like when I really get down to it and say, you know, how long have you had these gut symptoms? Yes, they've been bad for the last two years or year and that's why you're here, but you know, it could be like, like they're like, oh, since I can remember, since I was mm. little, they've always had some kind of issue and it's just got to this really bad point where they can't live with it anymore. So, I mean, what do you find works for kids who do who present with this kind of constipation? What do you use clinically? Yeah, so I really, you know, when I've got parents with their kids, I, you know, obviously get lots of information from the parent, but I still try to talk to the child and engage them. Um, make things funny so um kids yeah. love it when it's funny and you know look already talking about poo and farting is funny for them so <laughs> that helps to get them you know engaged and really into the process of working together um so you know i might say things like you know when kids are eating um like watching tv or something so we'll switch the tv off but then i'll say things like well you have to chew 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 to poo 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 um <laughs> and they always laugh adults laugh too but um like it just really gets the kid like they'll remember that you know you need to do things that kids will remember you can't just have a whole list of okay you're going to do this now this 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 because that that's not going to get them engaged in their treatment and when kids are engaged in their treatment it's heaps more effective than getting the parent to nag them. Mm. Um, but I will get parents to go to like Bunnings or something and buy a stool, like a step stool that brings the kids' knees above um, their hips when they're on the toilet. Adults should be using this too, by the way. It's not just for kids because yeah. toilets do not put our bowel in a good position. Um, we talk about things like water and why water is so important. You know, water is important for plants. Water is important for your bowel as well. So I just try and give them really visual things to remember, um, you know, what we're going to be doing. Increasing diversity of plants and getting more fibre in there. Um, making time to sit on the toilet. Um, I will also use probiotics, um, lots of different ones, but I do use l DSM 17938 or the combination one that also contains ATCCPTA6475, especially for my kids that have gut issues and also have autism or mm. there's a lot of anxiety around or they might have had um, immune or inflammatory things going on at the same time. Um, partially hydrolyzed guar gum. I said before, it's really easy to dissolve that in some hot water and then, you know, add to a herbal tea. I try and get kids to maybe have herbal teas if they're not keen on water. Um, not only some of the herbal teas will, you know, help with um, calming down the stomach, but um, it also just gets them, you know, maybe they hate water. They, lots of kids hate plain water, so we'll try and do that. Um, L-glutamine. Vitamin D, A, zinc, like I said before. Um, if there's inflammation going on in the gut as well, which, you know, if you've got leaky gut and food intolerances um, along with this constipation, then I might use a bioregulatory medicine for inflammation or for mucous membrane health. Magnesium as well, you know, we know that that can help kind of with cramping. It can help with bowel motions as well and always looking at, okay, well, 
why did this happen to the child and, you know, looking at the causes as well as just the actual treatments to get the bowels working. But the probiotic I discussed, I find like just that alone with some partially hydrolyzed guar gum for at least a couple of weeks before they come back, that makes a huge difference for kids. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I know even just myself having used it clinically and, and looking mm. at the research that lactobacillus ruderidea, so 17938, is really indicated for motility disorders and, and, you know, whether it's constipation or diarrhea, it just normalises yes. the motility in the gut. Yeah. Which is what is beautiful. If you, if you can find something that modulates and normalises rather than going just one way or the other, you, you're going to get better results. And look, I think that was such a comprehensive overview of what you can do to sort of improve that motility in children. And I love the thing that you were saying about really engaging with those, those clients and, and entertaining them and getting them to want to, you know, sing the little songs yeah. and get um, involved in their treatment. That's great. Yep. And look, one thing that I found is often related to digestive disorders, uh, like constipation, but even other sort of tummy upsets in children is stress, anxiety. And, and I'm wondering, do you see kids who present with stress and anxiety induced changes to digestive health? Yeah, a lot of the kids that I see, um, not, not all of them, but a lot do have some kind of worry or anxiety, um, you know, or parents that have gone through a difficult time or um, even got divorced um, or just kids that have been anxious pretty much since they were born. Mothers will report that, you know, they just couldn't be left alone in the room. Um, I see that a lot in that, you know, um, kids with tummy issues. And if we look at, like, studies of IBS or um, irritable bowel syndrome um, in adults, like, a lot of them have this personality type of being a bit more anxious, someone who worries a lot, maybe has more nervousness, um, all this goodism. So they always want to do the right thing by everyone and be seen as good. So that mm. um, personality presentation is common in adults. So it definitely does happen in kids as well. Yeah, it's interesting that almost, I guess, what stereotypically referred to as the type A personality, yes. perfectionist tendencies. And, and you know, the, the way I think of it is almost like that kind of personality will tend to hang on to things too tightly. You know, they hang on yeah. to situations really tightly. They hang on to worry really tightly. And I think it almost makes sense that the bowel then hangs on to everything really tightly as well. Yep, exactly. And then you have those kids that are super anxious mm. and they might have more diarrhoea, um, because they're just, their bowels are just, everything's going through really quickly because they've yeah, got okay. so much stress going on in their little body. And so, yeah, you can, you need to work on all those kind of emotions. And I do use um, bioregulatory um, medicines for that mm -hmm. as well, because they're so easy to use in kids and they love taking them and they re remind their parents. So... <laughs> So what kind of bioregulatory medicines and other sort of remedies do you use for kids who present with that real stress, anxiety type picture and digestive disorders? Yeah, so I will use the bioregulatory medicine for stress in kids. It's a chewable tablet. And as I said, the kids, they want to do it. If you can have a child wanting to do your treatment, um, then, you know, you've just got such, like I just find that makes my job easier. It makes the parents' jobs easier. Um, I will use the l ruteri combination probiotic as well because it does work on the gut-brain axis. Um, there's meditation apps now that you can, you know, parents can download onto their phone. Deep breathing, so I call it teddy on the belly. So I'll get kids to lay down on the bed or the floor and pop their favourite teddy or toy on their belly, on their belly button, and really try to move that teddy or toy up and down so that we know that they're breathing really deeply, which is great for um, the nervous system. But also if you're, you're breathing diaphragmatically, just the movement of your diaphragm up and down, it actually massages um, the transverse colon. So if they do have constipation, that's going to help with that as well. Um, establishing a really good sleep routine is good, like is essential for any kid and adult, to be honest, but especially stressed kids um, or anxious kids. They really, I find that those children in my clinic find it hard to get to sleep. Mm. So I will use that bioregulatory medicine for stress for the sleep and I'll just give them a few more doses closer to bed to help with that. Um, starting 
with a good breakfast for kids um, that are anxious is really important. I know a lot of times they don't feel like it maybe, especially if they're stressed about going to school, but it will just start the nervous system a lot calmer for the day. And diffusers and essential oils, they're beautiful to use for kids, you know, um, and adults alike, but, you know, for kids it's just such a gentle way to kind of um, support their nervous system. Yeah, and I think um, there's some really beautiful recommendations in there. And, and I love this idea that, you know, often with children, you don't need to go too hard or too heavy. You know, they're, they're more responsive to our treatment. So if you have, yeah, if you have nice, gentle kind of strategies, they work just as effectively. Yes, you're not really digging through a lot to get to yeah. um, kids. It's That's what's so, I guess, rewarding about working with kids. You often see um, results, positive results quite quickly. So, I mean, one of the most challenging things I've treated clinically has been abdominal migraines. And you mentioned before that, you know, a severely constipated child might present with abdominal migraines. Um, maybe could you tell us a little bit about what you've actually used clinically to address this condition? Yeah. So um, I did do a lot of research probably six years, six, five to six years ago into abdominal migraines and that cyclical vomiting picture, which can occur together. Um, again, you know, it's close to my heart. My daughter had this, um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know why it was occurring. She just got a diagnosis through a gastroenterologist. Obviously with her dad's history, we did look at all the other things that could have been going on. Um, so when you have abdominal migraine is often seen in kids can be with constipation, but it can also be when the parents have, um, a history of migraines. And so sometimes kids will go from having abdominal migraines to having headaches and migraines as they get older. But, you know, we can try and work to prevent this and not just make it that, yep, they're going to have migraines as they get older and we just have to accept that. So sometimes when kids have a build-up of stool, and I say, as I said, you, you know, your child can be going every day in a huge amount, does not mean they're not constipated. Mm. Um, so when there's a build-up, um, they can then, obviously abdominal migraine is just like a cramping. Kids can say they've got a tummy ache or tummy cramps. Um, they can lay on the floor. They can hold their belly. Um, so it's really just this pain that, you know, you normally would imagine for with adults it's in the head, but with kids it's really centred in the stomach. So, again, there's that connection, you know, gut-brain connection. Um, and cyclical vomiting can present as, you know, vomiting every so often. I find it's often in the evening with kids I've seen in clinic. Um, and it can happen for like three nights in a row. It can happen for one week in a row. It can occur every couple of months or every three months. Um, so it's quite, you know, it's debilitating at night. It just takes a lot of effort to obviously clean all of that up. It takes a lot out of children. Um, and with abdominal migraine and cyclical vomiting, there can be a lot of fatigue in that child when they're going through that kind of flare-up. Um, so the first, I have a lot of kids coming to me with this now, which, you know, for me is perfect because I love that and I know exactly what to do, but we really look at it as partly, you know, a histamine issue. So with kids, I won't put them on a full, um, low histamine diet. It is pretty restrictive. So if I don't need to do it, I'll, I'll just see what we can get away with, but really mm -hmm. just taking them off processed meats. Um, dairy for a certain amount of time, fermented food like dairy, like yogurt, I find is a huge trigger for kids with this. Um, even though you'd think yogurt, beautiful food, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, sugar, um, lollies. So kids often get this after parties, like after they've been to a party, even if normally their diet is really quite good. And things like tomato paste or tomato sauces that have been cooked for a really long time because as food is cooked longer or aged, it um, increases in histamine content. So with those foods, pizza, I had a little boy who every time he ate pizza would just vomit for three nights. Oh, wow. um, so we just had to, even though he was Italian, we had to cut pizza out for a little bit. Um, but, you know, working with his constipation with the strategies I mentioned before, and just taking out some of those, you know, three foods groups and not eating maybe really ripe bananas, you know, like really trying to avoid that, he improved within four weeks. Um, so you want to look at healing the gut. You want to look at the mucous membrane. 
um, and what the because what the the mucous membrane really helps us to have more bacteria in there that produce things like um, enzymes like DAO that break down histamine. Um, and you want to look at immune balancing and, you know, what happened to them in their history that might have um, altered their immune capacity to really deal with things like that. I mean, again, very, very comprehensive overview of treatment options and strategies. And I like the way you sort of modify some of those um, treatment approaches to really meet the children where they're at. You know, you can't expect a child to follow a really restricted histamine diet, for example, the way an no. adult might, you know. Yeah. Well, that I means mean, taking guess... out lots of, sorry, that means taking out so many fruits and I just find that I don't need to do that. If I don't need to do that, then, yeah. With children, you don't want to take away foods because then you're, you know, you're looking at nutritional deficiencies as well. To be honest, I think that's a pretty good strategy even for adults. Mm. I think putting patients on a high yeah. restricted diet long-term, it's not a great idea. We need to figure out, as you said before, what's going on underneath and what can we do to address the, um, the cause, basically. Yeah. So I guess that brings me in a way to my last question, which is, you know, kids can often be quite fussy in terms of they either won't eat at all or they don't really want to take their supplements. Do you have any magical hints and tips that you're happy to share with us about how you get kids to actually eat and, and, and take the good supplements they should be taking? Yeah, so um, definitely there's a lot that can be done to improve, um, you know, poor appetites and just fussiness. It is a very emotional issue for parents because, you know, they probably have tried for so long to really push the child to have this. They've tried to do bribes and, you know, make barters on like, okay, if you eat this, I'll give you this. Um, and, you know, dinner time can be especially hard and quite stressful because kids will just look at something and go, I don't like that. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like, trust me, I still get that in my house sometimes. Um, but I think, you know, with kids that have really poor appetite, I look at how late are they having, you know, sugar. Is there any kind of, um, you know, big amounts of sugar in the evening which then disrupts their glucose balance overnight and then makes them feel kind of nauseous or poor appetite in the morning? So that's a really one that I've found a lot. So I might put like a protein, a kid-friendly protein shake in the morning or smoothie to kind of get them to have a lot more. You can hide a lot in that. Um, check their zinc status because I find mm. that poor zinc status, I'll have like really fussy eaters, kids that are eating like a little sparrow, and then I'll just work on zinc, you know, with, a, with gut healing and as well and they come back like four weeks later and you know the parents report that they're eating really good amounts um and with kids that have been fussy eaters and picky you really want to look at iron as well so i'll generally use body signs for that some kids have had blood tests so we can go based on that as well um and using digestive stimulants so i've got like a herbal formula that i'll use that contains things like ginger and chamomile licorice mint um, and bitter herbs that kind of stimulate their digestion because sometimes kids' digestion has just been, for whatever reason, just, you know, reduced or shut down over time. It could be due to stress. Um, that shuts down your digestive capacity. Mm. And so if you're not making a good amount of digestive enzymes, you're definitely not going to feel like eating or have a good appetite. Um, and I will use, you know, bioregulatory medicines that contain things like Nux vomica um, because if there's nausea, that is seriously amazing. And, you know, it's easy to give to kids, as I said again. Um, so I'll use that. And some kids, it's texture. So you really need to, the parents need to be willing to kind of experiment. And, you know, I know my kids won't eat purple cabbage um, raw, <laughs> but if I put it into those Japanese pancakes with rice noodles and other stuff, they love them. So it's really about how you present the food um, and with kids as well, I think we do, look, it is frustrating sometimes being a parent, but we can give up too, too easily. So I know my son, who's four now, he hated carrots. Um, you know, I think he, tr I put carrots. And so if you know they don't like it, I just put a tiny bit on their plate and make them at least put it to their mouth and their tongue. Um, you know, sometimes you'll get them, you'll convince them to have one bite um and just keep going like just keep putting it on their plate i know i try and put it if they don't eat it in the garden or to the chicken so it's not a waste 
But, you know, 20 times, I've heard 40 times from some dietitians that it can take kids, you know, 20 to 40 times to taste something on their tongue before they accept it. And, wow. you know, so if you give up after 10, you know, you're, you're not going to get there. Like I know my son hated carrots. He eats them now. Um, I just didn't give up. I just kept putting, you know, instead of maybe five sticks of carrot or I just put one and, okay, if I have to get rid of that one, oh, well. Um, and also trying it, you know, as I said, different ways. So, like, do they like cooked carrot but they don't like raw carrot or do they like it grated because they, they, they might have, you know, teething issues. Like kids are always losing teeth, growing teeth at certain times. Is it that it's hurting their teeth so maybe a grated carrot would be better? Um, and just, yeah, trying not to put too much pressure and um, getting too frustrated and angry. Like I think we take it personally a bit sometimes as parents. So just going, okay, they're just going to try it. Even I might just have one mouthful. If you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. But if you do that, you know, 20 times, maybe they will like it. Um, That's great. And, I mean, again, you know, some really good suggestions in there. And I, I love your idea of just, just be creative. Like you've, you've got to really think outside the box often when you're working with kids, don't you? Yeah, you do. Like they're, they're quite stubborn. <laughs> For little things, they're quite stubborn. And, you know, you're not going to force it down their mouth. Um, but, yeah, just... Just seriously keep trying. That's the biggest thing I think is like don't give up. Like my daughter hated pumpkin for years. She loves pumpkin soup now. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't mean they'll never like it. I hated mushrooms as a kid. I put mushroom in almost everything now, different types. So, you know, it's just, yeah, don't give up. And when I've heard that, that you have to try at least 20 times, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like the amount of parents and even myself that sometimes I went, okay, fine, they're never going to like this. But 20 times is a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I think that's such a message of hope for parents sometimes as well because, as you said, parents can sometimes just be really frustrated because they feel like they've tried everything. And I think if you can just give them this idea that you've just got to persist, that, you know, yeah. there is hope and you'll, you'll come out the other side. And, and also, as you said, if you address some of the underlying reasons why children may not yeah. want to eat certain things, that can get them through as well. Yeah, definitely. So I have to say, Danielle, that was such a wonderful conversation. I feel like we've taken this great journey through the development of the gut microbiome, how gut health can be affected in children, and then really practical clinical strategies on addressing some of those issues if they do present clinically. Oh, thank you so much. As I said, I definitely had fun again. Um, yeah, and I hope that lots of people get, you know, a lot out of it that can help them. That is really, really great. And I also just wanted to say thank you to those of you who tuned in for the podcast today. We really hope you found this discussion interesting and useful. Please tune in next week to hear another great podcast from those of us here at Biopractica. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.